you read the Bible, and you come across a passage, and you say, hmm, I wonder what that means. And then you keep reading, right? <laughs> and then you move on. You say, yeah, I wonder what that meant. And you move right on. Uh, I had a question come up a couple of weeks ago. I think it came up last week, but it was from, I think, a couple of weeks ago, where we were walking through the nature of um, Jesus, the question of Deuteronomy 13 from the signs and wonders messages, where if a prophet comes to you with signs and wonders, however, what he says denies what the Word of God has already established, you reject the signs and wonders in deference to the Word of God. And we were in John chapter 10, where the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of blaspheming because he called himself the Son of God. And Jesus appeals to Psalm 82. If the scriptures say, ye are gods, then why is it a problem that I am called the Son of God? So to remind us of that context, we're going to start in John 10. And the question is, what, did, what is that psalm saying? Ye are gods. What's the deal with that? Why, is, why, why, why does the psalmist uh, say that God says that ye are gods to the nation of Israel or specifically to his audience? What does that mean? And what does it mean for Jesus being the son of God if we are gods? And what does it mean that we are gods? Or are we gods? Or who, is, who are gods? Who is the ye? All of those questions. What does it mean? So we're going to talk, we're going to read through this passage in John 10. We'll go back into Psalm 82 and read through that. And then you get to tell me what it means. And that'll be fun. So let's do that. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. The feast of the dedication would be equivalent to what feast today in the Jewish calendar? Feast of Lights or Hanukkah. So this is Hanukkah. This is winter. And where did Hanukkah come from? The Maccabees. What's specifically about the Maccabees? That's right. Feast of Dedication. It was the rededication of the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes in 168, 164, I think, 164 B.C. Uh, went into the, I don't know, I think maybe 168 was the abomination and 164 was the rededication. Um, went into the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar, desecrated the temple, set up a statue of Zeus, refused to allow the Jews to worship Jehovah any longer, and sought to Hellenize the Jews. The Maccabees arose in that time uh, as freedom fighters in order to preserve Jewish culture. They ended up overthrowing Syria, pushing them back out, and rededicating the temple. There are, of course, legends that go along with that, uh, particularly as it relates to the menorah, that after they rededicated the temple, uh, they, the, 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 the golden candlestick only had enough oil, I believe, for one night, and yet it burned for the entire week um, during that feast time where you had to have those candles lit. And so there were these miraculous uh, traditions surrounding the Feast of Lights, the Feast of the Dedication, or Hanukkah. Um, it is not one of the primary holidays, Jewish holidays. Um, it, is, it is a minor holiday, just like Purim is a minor holiday. These are not ones that are instituted in the scriptures, right? Uh, these are ones that were added later on, uh, and yet it is still 
um, a, a well-known holiday. So Jesus is walking in the Feast of the Dedication. And for those of you that, that know the connection, uh, I, don't, I don't believe I have it. Let me see if I have it written down here so I can point you to it directly. This is such a neat passage. I had a Messianic Jew teach on this passage one time, and he made such a neat connection, but I don't know if I have that connection written in. Yes, uh, Haggai 2.18. Um, No, not not for Samuel. What's going on here? Let's try this again. Um, Haggai prophesying here. He says in verse 17, I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail in all the labors of your hands. Yet ye turned not to me, saith the Lord. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. The the 24th day of the ninth month would have been within this exact same time. As a matter of fact, they believe it was the 24th day of the ninth month when the temple was rededicated. So Haggai says that the, 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 the 24th day of the 10th month was the day that the, the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. It was also the day that it was rededicated. And many Messianic Jews believe that it will also be the day um, that, uh, when the Lord will return. And so that being said, you can imagine Jesus is walking on Solomon's porch, which was in the temple complex, on Hanukkah, uh, during the, this Feast of the Dedication, and it's a time of revolutionary thinking, right? It's a time to think about casting off our enemies. It's a time to think about the temple and uh, what the Maccabees did and when it was laid and all of these things. Uh, then came the Jews round about him and said, verse 24, and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. There's the temple, Jesus. If you're the Christ, um, go sit. You know, go sit in there and do what... What Messiah is supposed to do? Rule and reign with a rod of iron. Cast off your enemies. Overthrow Rome. Jesus answered them, I told you and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Interesting, right? So he, so, so it would, in, in, in my, my uh, perhaps sanctified imagination, I believe what they're saying here, though, is do the work. Do what the prophecies say you'll do if you're Messiah. And he said, I have done the works. They're just not the works you expected. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me... This clicker is not working lately. I wonder if uh, the battery's dying. I bet the battery's dying. But I thought it was a fairly new battery. Okay, doesn't matter. Uh, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And I, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Because of that statement, I and my Father are one. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. And this is where Jesus gives his defense. Jesus answered them, it is, is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, 
Say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So Jesus appeals to this passage in Psalm 82. It says there, to those unto whom the scriptures were written, ye are gods. If it was written, ye are gods, unto whom the scriptures were written, and the scriptures cannot be broken, then why would you say, I am blaspheming? Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean they have to believe what he's saying, but there's no credible reason if Jesus is saying something uh, which the scriptures would admit that there are other gods than just God, then, then he's certainly not a Deuteronomy 13 candidate. And the fact that he is not out of line with the scriptures and he's doing great works means they should probably start thinking about what he's saying. So now let's go back to Psalm 82 and let's figure out what, what, um, what's being said there, who's being spoken of. Uh, Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Okay, so, what does it mean? I have said ye are gods. If someone were to come up to you and ask you, what was Jesus talking about in John 10? What is Psalm 82 talking about? Ye are gods. What would your response, what would your answer, what would your thinking be along these lines? Nathaniel? Well, we're specifically focusing in on verse 6, I suppose. I have said, ye are gods, because that's what Jesus was invoking. Um, we would assume that the gods of verse 6 would probably be the same gods of the second half of verse 1, or the gods of verse 1. Um, and we do see a translational decision here to distinguish between God and gods. Uh, God with a capital G, their translational decision being that is the God, and then gods with a lowercase g, plural, is other gods. Now the ironic thing is that they are all the same word, Elohim, each time. Elohim standeth in the congregation of the mighty, he judgeth among the Elohim. I have said, ye are Elohim, verse 6, and all of you are the children of the Most High, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O Elohim, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. But Jesus, now, we, we don't need this to defend what I was defending when I was talking about signs and wonders, because Jesus, the point, uh, uh, Jesus was not actually there speaking specifically in John 10 to the fact that they are gods. He was simply saying, the scriptures tell, call someone other than the true and living God gods. 
and I'm the son of God. And he's not even saying there because he already said, I and my father are one. He's not even saying he is not God. All he's saying is, my, my language is within the, the scope of acceptability as it relates to theology. So what, what in that is blasphemous? You may think my meaning is blasphemous, but the words are not blasphemous. However, that this brought up a question, what does it mean? And that's why I put up a big question mark at the beginning, and that's what I'm asking. What does it mean? Ye are gods. What, what is... How would you explain this to someone who's trying to figure out God and gods and what are gods in the Bible? And actually, this, this uh, comes up in another important way, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, as it relates to, say, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If it's just Elohim there, and Elohim doesn't necessarily mean the God of the Bible, then how do we know that it was the God of the Bible that was the only one or the one doing the creative work? So anyway, okay. So I mentioned already the Hebrew word Elohim. It's the plural form of the Hebrew word for God, El. Literally means supreme ones. It can speak of divine, spiritual, or mortal beings that have been delegated divine authority. Typically when we see God speak to gods, it speaks of someone who has a measure of, of, of authority. Um, whether that be angelic beings uh, demonic beings who have a measure of capacity and authority, or whether that be uh, humans who have some measure of authority, be that government officials uh, who have delegated authority by God through the government function, um, be that a measure of uh, particularly uh, kings or, or um, priests or, or those who have been given some delegated function. Um, the contrast in Psalm 82, as we see it, is between the God standing in the congregation, judging among the gods. But if they're both the same word, how do we distinguish? And of course, the only and best way to distinguish, when, especially in, in the Greek, because, I mean in the Hebrew, because Hebrew is a somewhat ambiguous language, is context, right? Context. Context is how we distinguish. So if you read through Psalm 82 carefully, you'll, we, we find that there's actually a good bit of context here to understand what's being said. In verses 6 and 7, ye are gods. Notice there the plural pronoun. Now Elohim is Elohim. Elohim is a plural word. But not uh, the plural is not always used with plural pronouns. But in verse 6, it says... I have said, ye are gods. Now, here's a wonderful thing about our King James Bibles that you all know by this point. If ye, you, your is used in our King James translation, what is the um, person of the pronoun behind it in either Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek? Singular or plural? Hmm? Plural, right? Ye, you, your, always plural. In Hebrew, in Greek. Now, Hebrew has one called the dual. It would be ye as well. So Hebrew has one, two, or many. Greek used to have one, two, or many in classical Greek. But by the time Koine came around, it was just one or many. No more, no more dual. Um, either way, ye stands for more than one. 
So I said, ye are gods. Okay, so ye, more than one person, are Elohim. And we'll, we'll come back in a moment to Psalm uh, 82 and, dis, and dis, dis, determine who it is. We do see here, however, in verse 7, he says, ye are gods. And then in verse 7, he says, but ye shall die like men. So you have some measure of authority, but here's the thing about your authority. You're still mortal. You will die like men. But then in verse 8, he says this. Arise, O God, same word, Elohim, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Thee, thine, thou. Singular. So even though the word Elohim is being used, it is being used paired with a singular pronoun, which tells us that this is God. Now, why would God refer to himself in the plural, Elohim, instead of just El? We see lots of other Els, right? El Elyon, El Shaddai, lots of other names for God that are just El, and yet Elohim is plural. So there's a couple of different ideas here. One is called the majestic plural. The idea of the majestic plural is something that we see throughout history uh, when regal people are writing or, or are, are making proclamations. A king would make a proclamation and the herald would get up and, or, or, or the king would get up to, to make a speech and he would say, we decree. And the idea is very, actually it's kind of similar to, to what I say on a Sunday morning. I'll get up and I'll say, please turn in your Bibles to such and such. And I'll say, last time we were together, we were talking about, and we said, right? And so I'm telling you that we were talking about things and we were saying last week this, this, and this, when in fact had nothing to do with you. It was just this talking head up here, right? So that, that's kind of the idea, except in, the, in the, the kingly sense, it was a way for them to show their majesty or their authority by, by uh, using the plural pronoun to, to indicate himself as in, I speak for the state. I represent the state. I represent the power. I represent the everything, right? Therefore, I am going to speak as we, because I represent we. And so that's the majestic plural. This is very, very common throughout history. It, we would not be surprised that God would use the majestic plural. But then there's also, of course, the concept potentially of the Godhead, right? The idea that uh, God is three persons, but one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, we'll see this a little bit as we look into Genesis chapter 1 and the questioning there about the nature of, of Elohim. Uh, but these are not the only explanations people come up with. Some believe that Elohim is, in fact, um, the spirit head. In other words, it's, it's, it's Jehovah, and it's Jesus who they would say would not be Jehovah. He would be another person. Jehovah would only be the Father. And then Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit, and then all the angelic spirits, Michael and Gabriel and all of them, and they are Elohim. So that all the spirit beings together are Elohim. I don't see anything in Scripture that would support this. Um, nor would I believe that, that only the Father is Jehovah. As a matter of fact, I think Jehovah is the Trinity. I think Jehovah is the Godhead. I think they are all Jehovah. Um, but um, 
but that's, that's the idea here. For thou shalt inherit all nations. Okay, so Elohim is the thou here, right? And um, so this God, this plural, this God plural, uh, will, will inherit the nations. But here's the next question. Who is it that will inherit all nations? God, more generally. Jesus Christ, more specifically, right? Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, of course, this is the Father speaking to the Son, right? And I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost part of the earth for thy possession. The one who will inherit all nations is the Son, given by the Father. But the Father does not inherit the nations. The Father has the nations, right? The Son inherits the nations by virtue of his obedience. We studied this not too long ago in Hebrews as well, right? That Jesus Christ hath by inheritance a, a, a better name than the angels. We see this concept in Revelation 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded, right, at the seventh trumpet. There was great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so we have this idea that, that, our, that Christ shall inherit the nations. And so when we, when we see this concept once again, we see this being the God, not just the gods or a God, but the God will inherit the nations. So this concept of God, as we look at other evidences, Psalm 97, verses 6 through 9, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Confounded be all they that serve graven images that boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all ye gods, right? So we do see this precedent for the idea that there are other things in this world that are called gods. Zion heard and was glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of thy judgments, O Lord. For thou, Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. Uh, when we think of uh, Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus Christ will be exalted above all things in heaven and in earth, right? Uh, principalities and powers, uh, things in heaven, things in earth, things uh, under the earth. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. We recognize even those phrases, principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, right? There is authority there. Satan is called the god of this world. There are other gods, and even when Paul was on Mars Hill and he sees that altar to the temple of the unknown, you know, uh, uh, the altar to the unknown God there on Mars Hill, he acknowledged that they worshipped any number of gods. And we recognize even from Scripture, as Paul would say, that these idols do have undergirding them, behind them, spiritual forces, oftentimes. Gods. Now, we would, not, we, we, we would be hesitant to, to use that word. We'd call them false gods or idols or, or demonic spirits or whatever the case may be. But, but as, as the Bible presents it, these are lesser gods. They are, they, are, uh, they are either spiritual beings or, in the case of kings and whatnot, mortal beings that have measures of authority, sway, and power in that sense, in the, over the kingdoms of, of Satan, but in, in, in the angelic sense, in the kingdom of God. 
And so this is, again, not a unheard of terminology, right, as it relates to gods. Psalm 135, 1 through 5, Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the name of the Lord, praise ye, O his servants of the Lord, O ye servants of the Lord, excuse me, ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself, and Israel for his peculiar treasure. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. All right, so, so we see this, this precedent. As we look then into Psalm 82, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty, he judgeth among the gods. And then notice what he what it says in verse 2. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? So these gods here, who are mortal men, right? We know that because they will die like men, are the rulers of the nations, specifically perhaps Israel, who were judging unjustly and accepting the persons of the wicked. So then the call, defend the poor and the fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. They know not. That's, that's these gods. They don't get it. Very similar to what we saw in Psalm 10, right? They're not listening. They don't understand their frailty, their weakness. They don't understand that they are, that, that they are gods, but that they are under, that, they are, they, that the God of all flesh stands in the congregation judging them. And we know from the scriptures that those who are in positions of authority also are, are, are in positions of greater accountability. Whether that be pastors, where James tells us, be not many masters, knowing they shall receive the greater condemnation. That word masters there meaning teachers. Don't desire to be a teacher of the word of God flippantly. And, and uh, it, it, you know, Paul tells us if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desire good work. So it's good. But don't desire it flippantly because they shall receive the greater condemnation. But this also goes for kings, judges, those who rule, especially those who rule over in the government capacity. Why? because that is a God-ordained institution, which means when a person steps into that capacity, he is stepping into a God-ordained institution, and he is taking over a God-ordained authority. And as he functions with God's authority, he thus functions under God's accountability, right? So remember that as it relates to the, the people who have stepped into positions of power. They're doing so for power, but they will be held higher, uh, to a higher standard before the throne of God. Pastors will, kings will, governors will, and fathers will, as those who lead the institution of the family. Family, church, government, right? The three primary institutions that God has ordained. Now, they may not each have the same level of accountability, but they each have heightened accountability before the Lord as those over whom God has given authority. Those, because we have authority, those under us are, are called to submit to us, right? My wife is called to submit to me. My children are called, is, uh, are called to obey me 
as unto the Lord, which means they do their part by submitting and obeying. I'm accountable for what I, what I impose upon them. They're accountable to do it. I'm accountable for what they do, right? So this is the idea here. I have said ye are gods. In other words, God saying, I have given you a measure of authority. But don't forget that you'll die like men. And he says in this case, you are all children of the Most High as well. That might lend us to the idea that he's speaking specifically to leaders in Israel. That as, as those who are a part of the covenant, they are children of the Most High. That would be my best surmising as to what, why God would put that there. Um, we see the idea that the children of Israel were a peculiar treasure, even as we see here in Psalm 135 that he's chosen Jacob for himself. So this is not the idea that they are all believers, but they are all children of the Most High and that they've entered into this covenant relationship with God as a part of Israel. So this would be, I would say, to the leaders in Israel, Psalm 82. And then, of course, the final call is for God to judge the earth. Now, here's the doctrinal, before we get to the doctrinal question, questions, concerns, comments, disagreements, thoughts. Okay. So, now we go to Genesis 1.1 I asked about before. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Okay, who? 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 Who's this God? I already talked about that. Notice what it says in Genesis 1.26. And this is where things get a little interesting. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So we see here us. So at first, this is, this is what I would go through as I'm studying this. Okay, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim. Okay, Elohim, that's plural for gods. Um, it could mean any number of things, but it would most likely mean the God of all flesh because precedent-wise, he's the one who created things. I go to the New Testament, I see Jesus is the creator, right? And so because Jesus is the creator and this Elohim, but it does not necessarily rule out the idea that we're talking about a multiple body of angelic beings and whatever else because they are gods too in that sense. Uh, so this is, this is what I'm thinking. And, and then I say, okay, what I would be looking for then would be a singular pronoun, like in Psalm 82, right? Gods, and then I see a thou. And then a thou would help me say, okay, it's gods, but it's thou, which means this, the, the gods is actually God in the plural, the majestic plural, referencing a single entity, God, not many. And then we get to Genesis 126, and this is the first pronoun we see. With all of the others, it just says, and God said, let there be this, and there was this, right? This is the first one where we see us. This is the first place where we see a pronoun. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, so this doesn't, prove, this, this doesn't prove that it's a singular, certainly, right? Now we have a plural pronoun. So we would lend ourselves to this idea, all right, somebody's talking to somebody here. And again, we all who have been trained in this for many, many years would say, okay, this is the Godhead. This is the Father and the Son and the Spirit communicating. But it doesn't necessarily have to be, does it? Necessarily. You say, well, what, if it were angels... Well, okay, so angels wouldn't, in, in our thinking, angels wouldn't have been there when, in the beginning, God. But if, as I preached in my angel message, they were created on the first day when God said, let there be light, because angels are 
often associated in Scripture with light, then by Genesis 1.26, surely this could be the angels too. Let us. And God said, let us. In whose image are we made, though? Let us make man in our image. And this is where things become clear, right? We are not made in the image of angels, and angels are not made in the image of God. We are not made in the image of other men. We are made in the image of Jehovah. We are uniquely made in the image of Jehovah. So when God said, let us make men in our image, there are multiple persons within this conversation that bear the same image and upon which man's image has been given. Man has been given an image. This has got to be God and only God. Has to be God and only God. The angels don't bear God's image. As far as we know from Scripture, man bears God's image. That's what makes man so unique. And so we can answer this question. Genesis 1-1 is the God and only the God because the God that's speaking there says, let us, plural, make man in our image. Our image. This is the God. This is Jehovah. Does that make sense? So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And then, of course, we see the immediate pronoun reference change to he, not to them. He created them in his own image after saying, let us make man in our image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tell us that, that the Elohim here is God and only God. Sorry for not closing that quotation mark. Or, yeah, the, after them. Any questions or thoughts on that little concept there? Okay. So when Jesus said, ye are, when Jesus quoted, ye are gods, and when Psalm says, ye are gods, all over the place in the Psalms, we're not dealing with a theological controversy here. We're simply dealing with a definition of what a god is. And we, we ought to be able and willing to broaden our thinking a little bit about the nature of a god to recognize that there are other things on this earth that are gods. And in, and in the heavenlies that are gods. So that when and, uh, demonic beings are called principalities and powers and rulers, we do recognize their, the nature of, of the fact that they do have delegated authority. But of course, none of this threatens either God or Jesus in that Jesus is said to be the creator, which we see in Colossians, which we see in Hebrews, which we see in Ephesians. Jesus is a part of Elohim. And Elohim is the God who we are made in his image. Therefore, Jesus is not angelic. Jesus is Jehovah. He is a part of the Godhead, right? And so none of this threatens anything, but it's worthy of our time to think through so that we can articulate it to help others who might be confused. So the us and the conversation between persons can be interchangeable with him. This does not lend itself to a conversation. Yep, I already talked about all that. So back to John 10. And then we'll actually finish this a bit early tonight. I kept you late last week. I'll, I'll finish early tonight. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. 
For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, Ye are gods? If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. Now again, Jesus is not saying he is not God here. He's actually kind of avoiding that question, although he's, he, in a sense, he's, he's avoiding saying it outright while simultaneously saying here, I am the one whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world. I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah. Therefore, he is God. And he calls himself the Son of God, and when they know what that title means. But what, again, he's not arguing against or for anything as it relates to divinity here. He's simply trying to catch them in their own double standard. And if they could shed their double standard, then they would be able to take an honest look. <coughs> Excuse me. And if they took an honest look, what they would find is that everything that he has done points to the fact that he is, in fact, the Messiah from God. If I do the works of my Father, believe me not. If I do not the works of my Father, excuse me, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So that's what Jesus was saying there. Jesus was showing their double standard and calling them unto account so that uh, to, to break down their argument against the Deuteronomy 13 idea. But this idea of ye are gods, God was speaking there to in, in theory, we know it was mortal men, men who were not just called gods, but children of the Most High, most likely the leaders in Israel, men who were not doing what they as leaders were supposed to do, judge properly and take care of the poor and the needy. Ye are gods, therefore you have accountability, but don't forget you will die like men. So that's what that means. Any questions about what it means? or thoughts, or anything else along, along the periphery of these things. Nathaniel. How does it affect me? How does what affect me? Mm. Uh, well, so, no, this, the, 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 the purpose of this primarily is have an answer for every man that asketh you, right? But um, in Psalm 82, the part that, of course, uh, the, the, well, I wouldn't say of course, but the part of this that strikes me of, cor uh, 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 of, of note or of, of uh, impact in me is, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. A reminder. Um, that um, no matter, you know, whether it be ourselves or others, um, we have a tendency to elevate men, right? It's a human nature to elevate men. Be that uh, us elevating others because of their authority, because of their expertise, because of their capacity, because of their charisma, whatever it might be looking up to people, and that's not a wrong thing to look up to people, to elevate people, to respect people, to have heroes in that sense. 
or we can elevate ourselves, which is a problem. Uh, let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth, right? Um, and we can think much of ourselves. But what I love about Psalm 82, and this has nothing to do with the Yar God's part, except to the effect that they had authority, uh, is that reminder, ye are gods, you're all children of the Most High, so you are privileged, you are blessed, you have something here. Fathers, you have authority, you are, you are privileged, you have something there. Pastor, you have authority, you have privilege, you have something there. Leaders in the church, you have a measure of authority, you have privilege, you have something there. Yes, you do, but ye shall all die like men. Um, Keep yourself in perspective and keep everyone else in perspective. Yep, there are some great men in this world. There have been some great men in this world, men that you can look up to, men that you can look up to for what they've done, for what they've said, for, how, for the impact that they've had. Even men like Paul and Peter, like David, Moses, Daniel, heroes of the faith, and they all died like men, right? And Jesus did too, but then he arose, like God. So we need to remember that, right? Uh, we, uh, and thus keep a perspective. That, that's what I would pull from Psalm 82 if I were preaching this uh, in a more um, exhortative way as opposed to an intellectual way. Yes, Sarah. Yeah, and, and of course, this, this can be a, a real comfort, right? So you hear about that politician who's been a career criminal politician for 35 years, and they're still getting away with it. And, and then you, you, you read that, and you say, and they will die like men. And the um, powerful and influential people, be that Hollywood or wherever it is, and once again, uh, they commit crimes that if we were to commit, we'd spend the rest of our lives in prison. And they put some money under the table, and they walk away, and they get, you know, probation, and they have to, they're under house arrest in their 6,800-square-foot mansion. Um, and they will die like men, right? Um, so then there, there, there's that part, and then there's the, then there's the part for, for me. As, as Sarah said, and, and I did as well, I will die like a man too. So uh, I need to maybe not, uh, not, not inflate myself too high um, because there's coming a day where I will die and then the Lord will judge me. And on that day where he judges me, um, I'm not going to feel too, too, uh, too large and in charge on that day. Sam. Just kind of just along those same lines as opposed to 
Yeah. Well, and we have this tendency to, to conflate God and idol, right. right? But they're not the same thing. I mean, the, the, our, our idols are often gods, or our gods are idols, but they aren't necessarily the same thing. Um, and that's, like I was saying in, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul speaks to the idea that this meat is offered unto idols, and then Paul speaks to the fact that these are false, that there are false gods undergirding these idols, right? So there's the idol, which is something made of stone, you know, whatever, Diana or, or Zeus or whatever. But then there are entities, there are, there are authorities, principalities and powers, either in heaven or on earth. On earth, it could be Caesar, right, who, who, who says, I am a god. And, and he is, in a sense. From a biblical definition, Caesar was a god, a lesser god. And then those, there would be those who would idolize him and thus worship him when worship is reserved for only the true and living God. But, there, yeah, there is this idea. And we do see it throughout Scripture. We just kind of translate it. We have a tendency to translate it into idol. And then we think of stones. And we don't think of principalities, powers, authorities uh, that, that do operate and exist in these... Uh, in these realms of, of either earth or, well, I guess it's all in the realm of earth, but, uh, or in the creation at least, but uh, either spiritual or, or physical, temporal. Good. Any other thoughts? And then, of course, that final call, arise, O God, judge the earth. This is the idea. From the beginning and the end, they're both about judgment. God, God stands in judgment over the gods of this world and then arise and judge um, because there's injustice. Many, many of the Psalms are about injustice. Um, why justice is so important. Why it's important that we seek unto justice. Not, not the modern definition of justice, right? Uh, but true justice. Uh, not, not adding to the false weight and balance. That's what they say justice is today. Uh, false weights and false balances is their idea of justice. That's the definition of justice today. But, um, you know, true justice is a, a true weight and a true balance. Um, good. Okay, we'll stop there. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.